Good morning, everybody. So I'm Dave Cook. I'm, I'm Allison's husband. Um, I've come here. We've been coming here since um, 1996, and I'm one of the elders here. And I've been asked to share this morning. Jeremy's going to be um, talking about parables all through November, with the exception of next week. He's going to finish up um, his Think Big series on uh, Ecclesiastes next week. But uh, he asked me if I would share one, uh, you know, a section on the parables in advance of that. And so that's what we're going to do this week. And the next week we'll go back to uh, a final week of, of Ecclesiastes. So before we do, um, to, and, and again, I'm sure Jeremy will elaborate on this when he uh, does his part. But um, I want to introduce in general what the parables are, okay, and what a parable is. And, and the, the introduction video uh, you know, highlighted a couple of them, and we're going to touch on those today. But parables are just great visual lessons of Jesus. They're word pictures, word stories of Jesus. I particularly attract to those. They don't, they don't compel themselves to um, memorization and things. Like, you can memorize them. You know, they're, they're great stories to tell. But they're, they're more for, like, if, if someone's reading you a story, um, that's, that's how it, what it would be. And if you think about it, Jesus knows what the kingdom is, right? And he knows completely the context he's in, so what the parables are, him visualizing the kingdom and visualizing the situation he's in and, and connecting the two. The intent of the parable is to teach deep, timeless lessons about Jesus and his kingdom. And the nature of the parables is this. Um, the Bible uses a lot of, of, of literary tools. It uses metaphors, which a metaphor is like a, two things that are unrelated, raining cats and dogs. You know, it, it says something by tying two unrelated things together. That's not what parables are. It uses allegories. Allegories are like where every detail in the story has significance. If you think of the Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan or the um, Animal Farm was, a, was a, you know, based on communism, but it's an allegory where every detail and every character in it had deep meaning to the... And most of the meanings in those things are earthly meanings. And then the other thing is fables. There's something different altogether. A fable is like a tale, and most of them, you put an animal in human circumstance, right? And you think of the tortoise and the hare having a race, and the slow and steady gets the, it has a, a, an earthly message to it. The slow and steady wins the prize, right? So that's a fable. Parables is different. Parable has heavenly spiritual truths about the kingdom hidden in the story, and they're hidden just beneath the surface of the story. So every detail of the story is, might be more to set the stage so that you can get the deeper meaning out of it. And you have to be of the right heart and the right mind to hear a parable and get what he's saying from it. And so I'll tell you about that in a minute. You don't get caught up in the surface of it. The Greek word for parable is parabolo. And I don't speak Greek, but I have uh, access to a computer, right? Um, and the parabolo has two parts to it. Para means alongside, and balo means truth. So what it is is, um, to, uh, no, excuse me, para, para means alongside, and balo means to throw. And so the idea of a parable is to throw the truth alongside, the, uh, the gospel truth alongside a story. To throw a lesson alongside the truth, excuse me. I was fine until you got a real pastor, wasn't I? <laughs> so, um, <clears throat> so why would Jesus use these word pictures? Why wouldn't Jesus come out and just say the kingdom of God is this? 
Well, for one thing, the kingdom of God is beyond anything we know, right? It's beyond anything we can imagine. And so he has to relate it to us. The other reason why is in Matthew 13, 10 through 13, the, the disciples asked them that very question. He had shared several parables by this point. And the disciples say, why do you speak in parables? Why don't you just come out and say what, you know, they, they, said, um, they said, why do you speak in parables in, in verse 10? He says, and he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, right? You're special. You're of a heart. You're listening to me to learn. You're listening to me to be closer to me and learn more about me. But to them, and them that are following him around for other reasons, the ones that are following him around to trip him up or to shoot holes in his theory or to discredit him, it has not been given. For the one has more will be given, and he has an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, or nor do they understand. See, certain people have already made up their minds about Jesus. Um, and, and, and what Jesus is doing here is he's quoting Isaiah's prophecy in verse 13, where he says, seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, He's referring to the Pharisees, the elites who followed him around, just trying to trip him up and discredit who he was. Jesus was not the Messiah they expected. And now, so if you look at all the parables that are describing the kingdom, they're contradictory to what the people were uh, what these people were uh, picturing at the time. They were blind and deaf to his teachings, and they did not want him to be the Messiah. The central focus of the of the of the parables is the kingdom. And we, we want to be like his disciples where we hear what he's saying through those, where he's taking the parables and relating them to us in our terms so that we can understand more about the kingdom. We want to be the people who will hear and see what he's saying. And like I said, the, the kingdom's completely different than what they thought. They thought it would be in Jerusalem. They thought the Messiah would be on the throne and be a military domination in the area. What is it really like? What do the parables say it's like? It says that all races will be there. People from, and, you know, the parables we're going to look at today, people from all walks of life will be there. Um, the lowest on the earth will be the greatest in heaven. It's like an inverse pyramid. The social elite at the time didn't want that, right? They didn't want to believe that they were going to be beneath us kind of people in, in, in heaven. It's not of this world. It's not here. Um, you know, at, at the Pentecost, when, when uh, the Holy Spirit came upon the, the disciples in, in the, at the day of Pentecost, it kind of set up that, that, that this kingdom that we long for, this kingdom that, that, that's going to happen when, when heaven and earth merge um, at, the, at the great end of the day, is something we can experience now. The kingdom, the, the beauty of the way the kingdom is set up is we can take part in it starting today. And in Acts 2, 29 through 33, this distinction is made. He says, brothers, uh, Paul said, uh, the writer says, brothers, uh, actually, Dr. Luke, uh, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, an earthly king, right, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. All earthly kingdoms will go away, right? Be therefore a prophet, knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, on my throne, on the throne in the kingdom, and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This is Jesus God raised up, and 
um, this Jesus God raised up, and of, of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, which allows us to live in the kingdom now, he has poured out on you that you yourselves are seeing and hearing what I mean by my word, what I mean by the parables. Not only is our king on a heavenly throne, but he allows us to experience his kingdom as his church. The church he said he would build after Peter proclaimed who Jesus was. So in Matthew 16, the disciples had, uh, Jesus had asked the disciples, who do they say that I am? And they all answered different things, that you're a prophet, that you're a teacher, that you're the second coming of uh, X, and, and, and of different things. And then, then he looked right at Peter and he said, who do, they say that, who do you say that I am? And Peter replied this, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus, so he, already, he recognized him as the king of this kingdom of which the world did not know at that time. And he said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. So he's calling Simon his old name, right? For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father is in heaven. And then I tell you, he changed his name. He said, Peter, which is rock, right? Peter, and I'm, so I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So the parables are about the kingdom, and to understand, we must look at the deeper meaning, knowing the intent. The intent is to reveal the kingdom to us and, and, and contrast it to what we would picture as, a, as an earthly kingdom. Um, so look at one example, and again, we're not going to read this one, but the parable of the laborers in the vineyard, where the, as the, the, the workers were hired later and later in the day, they all got paid the same. That, that parable is not about income equality or, or you know, national minimum wage or anything like that. It's about God's grace, that his grace is available completely to anyone when they come to him, all alike, no matter when they come to him. So that was the, that's what it's saying about the kingdom. It's about God's mercy. Some of the details of it are not key to the meaning, right? The parable and Jesus' other teachings are about the kingdom are recorded with two main purposes. One is to have us ready for when his kingdom comes at the end of the age so we can spend eternity with him. That makes sense. The second is to allow us to experience his kingdom now, even though not fully, and this will become really clear to you in a few minutes. The parables can be grouped by overriding themes of what the main meaning is. Um, Jeremy, after week, next week, like I said, will be covering several. I chose the overriding theme of separation and how separation re, uh, relates to the kingdom. And, and I'll tell you what I mean by that. Um, if you go to the uh, slide six, Gerald, um, Adam and Eve, pre-sin in the garden, had. For the, I want to talk about separation for a little bit in the biblical sense, and then we'll move on to the parables. So Adam and Eve, pre-sin in the garden, had free, unhindered um, fellowship with God. They, they could walk with God. They could talk with God. They were unashamed of God. God was present with them all the time. The garden was beautiful. It was his creation as it was intended to be, and they were in, in, in it, experiencing it to his fullness. Enter sin, and sin separated us from, um, from our fellowship with God. This is the original sin it's talking about in the next slide. There, there's a chasm now between us and God that, we, that separates us, that we can't have fellowship with God in the presence of sin. It created a chasm. Isaiah 59, 1 through 2, um, says this. Isaiah 59, 1 through 2. Behold, 
The Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so he, that he does not hear. You see, in, in the next slide, we see that fellowship is a bridge that we try to build between us and God and, and call, come across that chasm. And before, before Jesus, there were man-made um, bridges made, right? There were man-made ways to cross that chasm. They were atonements and sacrifices and things like that. But we, we can't build these bridges ourselves. We can't, we can't make a way physically with earthly means, a way for us to, to, to bridge this chasm because the raging water of sin is, is, in this graphic wipes out whatever we contend to build. Sin is completely, compl- continually pressuring us and, and hitting against us and, and ruining the bridge between, and breaking the chasm, um, opening back up the chasm between us and God. But enter Jesus, right? The blood of Jesus um, is a grace that rebuilds it. And it not just builds and rebuilds the bridge, but it renders the, the waters less powerful, right? It, re- it renders sin less powerful. Sin does no longer has the power to break the, the bridge between us and God. When you talk about separation, um, oh, then in the kingdom... In the kingdom, we're going to have eternity just like it was in the Garden of Eden. Eternity with unhindered presence of God. Eternity without sin between us and God, without the raging, with the, with, it won't even be present. Not only will it not have power over us, but it won't even be there. So we'd be in unhindered uh, presence of G- Jesus with, without sin. And, we, and, and then we can experience some of kingdom living now, though not in full, um, by, by now accepting Jesus because of Jesus. Not everyone chooses to live in the kingdom now. Those who choose to live outside the presence of Jesus now will not be ready when the new heaven and the new earth merge and, and at the end of time. Uh, and when, it, when the new heaven becomes, when, when eternity paradise becomes to, to completion. When you talk about separation, the next thing you have to talk about is preparation. Because if we fail to prepare we will be separated for eternity or left out, as today's parables will see. Um, you know, the people are choosing separation, um, and, and, and you know, right now they're choosing to be separate for Jesus for earthly reasons, right? They're choosing to be separate because other things are getting away. Um, there's a sin that's, that's washing away at them that they like, or they're, they're choosing the, to, to prioritize things here on earth rather than, than the, the presence of Jesus, and right now, it seems better. And right now, they seem to be doing okay. But they're facing eternal separation, which is much more traumatic. And I think that's what Jesus was getting across in these parables. Also, while we're talking about separation, the Old Testaments uh, talk about a veil or a curtain cover that intercept between man and the presence of God. The early temples, um, after, after this, the original sin, the, the early temples um, had a veil where only the high priest could go, and that was between man and the presence of God and the Ark of Covenant and all that. That's where God was. But there was a veil between us and them. And the, the, the high priest could only go in there on the Holy of Holies and, and, you know, and make atonement for all our sins, but they'd come back out and the sins would come back again, right? And it was, it was imperfect, but it was a representation, a visual representation. Um, 
And, you know, when sin entered the world, the sinner was separated from God. And uh, the consequence is that we wander in wilderness and we're lost and helpless. And there's a veil separating from the glory of God. We also see Moses putting on a veil after he meets with God and he talks to the people of Israel and gives them the word of God so that they can't look on even the holiness that he achieved. These separations referred to in the pre-crucifixion are physical. There's an angel at the garden gate to keep Adam and Eve out, right? There's the temple curtain. They are symbolic to some extent, but the count of Jesus' last moments on the cross show what separation really looks like. It shows the agony of separation and what it really looks like. It's God being unable to be in sin's presence, even for a short time, and he turns his back on sin. If you look in Mark 15, 34, that's slide 11, Mark 15, 34, he says as he cried out as he left this earth, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did he yell that out? Was he suddenly filled with doubt, wondering if he had misunderstood the mission God sent him on? Or was he filled with despair, concluding he was a failure and all his work was in vain? After all, the crowds had turned against him, and it seemed the ministry was over, didn't it? It seemed like it had come to an end. How are you going to be effective after that? Was it the nails he was scared of? Was it the soldiers who he created that were, that were mocking him and, and torturing him? Was it the mocking itself? In reality, these words point to something much different and much more traumatic. When Jesus died on the cross, all of our sins, without exception, were transferred to him at that moment. He was without sin, but he was God because he was God in human flesh. But he died, all of our sins were placed on him, and he placed the final and complete sacrifice for our sins at that time. And in the moment when, he, when all our sin was on him, the father could no longer look upon him. He had to turn his back on him. Don't know if it, how long it was, if it was measurable in time, but the agony of that is why he cried out. He endured the separation that you and I deserve. And from that point forward, we never have to deal with it again. It's a profound truth, but it should bring us great comfort. Because Christ died for us, we need not fear death, hell, or judgment, or separation ever again. The Bible says this, for Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous and the unrighteous, to bring you to God. 1 Peter 3.18. It's not on the board. 1 Peter 3.18. Remember this in a few minutes, but for now, um, after Jesus spoke the words, and looking back at the veil, there's a... Um, Jesus, Jesus died, you know, dies on the cross, cries out. The very next thing that happened was the temple veil, which was extremely thick, several feet thick, several stories high, made out of concrete and woven metal, split in two. It was like an earthquake, and that temple split in two. Symbolically, then, it was a revelation to those present, and it got account, every account of the crucifixion talks about the temple veil. All of a sudden, now we have free access it, even, even in the symbolic sense, to the holy of holies, to the presence of God. The act of redemption was complete when the veil was torn in two. The grace of God is the only uh, fix to sin's washout of the bridge between us and, G and God. Man's willing to accept and obey the gospel message is, is the only way. As we're given faith to accept the grace, we're reconciled to God as our sin no longer is attributed to us. All of a sudden, 
When God looks at us, he doesn't see our sins. He sees the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. The bridge is rebuilt. Whenever you think of reconciled, think of a bridge, okay? So we'll read 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this from God, who through Christ reconciled to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, bridge building. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. In Galatians 5.4 also um, maybe clarifies this a little bit. Galatians 5.4 says, You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law or your works. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit by faith, we eagerly ourselves wait for the hope of righteousness. For Christ Jesus, neither circumcision or uncircumcision, what we actually do, counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Keep in mind, again, this is not forced on us. We have free will to choose to stay separate from, from God. 2 Corinthians 5, 9, uh, 5, 9 through 10 says, So whether we are at home, and this is not on the overhead, so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. You see, at the end of time, whether we pass away and go, go move on ahead of time or at the end of times, God will separate the justified from the unjustified. That's what's going to happen at the great end of time, at the great end of time. If you're justified, it's only by choosing not to live separate, right? It's not like you have to do anything. I mean, you do. You'll be led to do things. But you, all you have to do is choose to not live separate, choose to want to be with Jesus Christ, to want to be with God through Jesus Christ, and the rest starts falling into place. The just will be rewarded with heavenly rest, which is eternity in the full presence of Jesus and a realization of him as he has been for eternity. The unjust will be eternal torment, eternal separation. 1 Thessalonians 1.9. 1 Thessalonians 1.9 says this, They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. By the way, and, that, and that this is kind of what someone that doesn't know Jesus Christ, doesn't love Jesus Christ, wants, right? They don't want to be exposed to his power. They don't want to be where they realize how powerful and great he is. And Jeremy can state this better than I because I know he's done it before. Both the just and the unjust, the saved and the lost, get what they want in the end times, right? Either eternity in the presence of Jesus or the eternity separate. So this is a great time for us to evaluate this. You're going to see in the parables I share that the main draw to the kingdom is that Jesus is there. Jesus is the main draw to the kingdom. Not, not you know, Lack of, of, of pain, death, not, not any of those things. Those are all come with that. But the real draw to the kingdom of God has to be wanting to be with Jesus. Um, so ask yourself, if the kingdom was free of pain, death, hunger, sickness, sin, conflict, but Jesus wasn't there, 
Would that still be your goal? Would you still want to be there? If all that was different about it than what the Bible describes was Jesus wasn't there, would you still want to be there? Is being in Jesus' presence what drives you? If not, what does? So now that we've biblically divine separation and what parables are, let's look at the three parables that deal with eternal separation. In these parables, you thought I'd never get to the parable itself, did you? But in these parables, Jesus teaches that condemnation equals eternal separation in this this context that we just described. So the first parable we're going to read, and I didn't put the whole parable on here. I just have the reference, um, but you can look it up if you want. But like I said, the parables are are to be heard. And so I'll share it with you as a reading. Matthew 13, and we're going to start in verse 24. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came to him and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No. Lest in gathering weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in the bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Then he does a couple more parables, the yeast and the... um, the yeast and another one. I can't remember what the other one is. And, and he, verse 36, the, the disciples said, hey, go back to that parable about the weeds and the wheat. What, what, did, what were you getting at there? Right? So in verse 36, then he left the crowds and went to the house and his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth." Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Who has, he who has ears, let him hear. Jesus is saying good and evil must be allowed because of original sin to grow together in the world. He will separate them in the end. This is great news. We, live in this, we leave this earth and, and move from our mortal sinful bodies, what some of our loved ones have done now. We will live in his full presence, which is great, but we'll also be free from the weeds. Sin will be eternally removed from our presence. The next parable I'd like to share is in Matthew 13, further down. And it's, um, it was highlighted in the introduction video. It's the parable of the net. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore, sat down, and sorted the good into the containers, but threw away the bad. So it'll be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Kind of the same principle, isn't it? 
Picture a large net behind a, a fishing boat that gathers up, you know, um, good fish, but there's also some bad ones in there, some you don't want. They pull it up and they sort the fish of value from the fish that are not of value and cast away the ones that are not. It's pointing to the final divine, ju- divine judgment when God will separate um, when God will separate us. You, you became valuable fish when God drew you and you put your trust in him. I thought about saying there, you a catfish or a carp, but I didn't think that, that, that I don't want to make too much light of this. Um, the next uh, parable I'd like to share about is the wedding feast. And I'm going to spend a little more time on this one. It's the parable of the wedding feast in Matthew 22. And we're going to share first slides one through, or this is verses 1 through 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent for his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention, went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those who murdered and burned their city. Then he said to the servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those who are invited are not worthy. Therefore, go to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out to the road and gathered all they found, both with the bad and the good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests." parable of the wedding feast is relatively straightforward. There are a couple simple yet uh, crucial aspects of this story that I think we need to highlight, though. First, this isn't any banquet, right? It's not a backyard barbecue. It's a royal wedding banquet. A king is putting on a wedding banquet for his son. Who in their right mind would refuse that invitation? Well, the people in this parable. Or those that came were presumptuous, as we'll see in a minute at the people in this parable. Again, it's a parable. Jesus is making a point, right? We looked at, in a previous sermon I gave about um, biblical Jewish wedding celebrations, but they were planned a year in advance. They would have been sent a, um, sent a general be ready at this time statement, kind of like what we call uh, save the date, you know, what we do for our weddings. Um, the wedding, once it started, lasted a week sometimes. It's extreme joy and celebration for the whole week. There's great food. God invites the attendees who don't answer. Actually, um, God invites the attendees, those who, uh, and, and those who don't answer actually refuse the call. Um, they even murder the messenger. So then it's less likely, so the, then the less likely, like us, the Gentiles are gathered, Gentiles are gathered up and they fill the hall. All they did was answer the invitation. All they did was allow the invitation to speak to them and draw them in. Then Matthew sticks in the last third of this parable, um, what looks like almost a second parable, and that's of the badly dressed guest. This complicates the story a bit, but it also uh, changes the gears from kind of a happy ending to an unhappy ending. So starting in verse 11 of the same chapter, but when the king came and looked at the guests, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. 
Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot, cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called and few are chosen. And the question there is, you know, does that, that seems a little harsh, right? It seems a little harsh. Maybe, uh, you know, maybe he didn't post a dress code and save the date. What, what is the deal? Well, again, let's look at the deeper meaning. He's talking about the kingdom here. He's not talking about what you wear to a party, per se. The king in his mercy was ready to forgive the man for not wearing his wedding clothes. And we'll look in just a second what the wedding clothes really are. But, um, but the king gave him a chance to, to explain himself. Maybe something happened, maybe, but didn't understand. But the man, the, the, when he was asked to give an account for why he wasn't dressed in wedding clothes, he said nothing. He just looked away. In other words, he didn't recognize that he was dressed wrong. Similarly, too, we can be people who excluded from the kingdom of heaven because of our own wrong, self-motivated choices. Jesus then ended his parable by giving a statement to the chief of priests and Pharisee. For many invited, few are chosen. He's saying, you were all invited, but very few of you will be chosen. Jesus spoke this parable to show them, and in all of us reading it today, what the kingdom, kingdom of heaven will be like when the age comes. Many are called into the kingdom, but none are able to come on their own. God invites them to his kingdom, otherwise they won't make an effort to be one with the Lord Jesus Christ. So who's who in this parable? The parable is the king's father God. The, parable is, the parable's king is the father God. The king's son, who being honored to banquet, is Jesus Christ, who came to that which, uh, which was his own, but his own did not receive him. That's in John 1.11. Israel represents those invitees who'd been invited to the kingdom, but when the time actually came for the kingdom to appear, they refused to believe Jesus was the Messiah. The murdered servants represent the multitude of prophets, including John the Baptist, who'd been killed by the Israelites. As a result, the king, the heavenly king's uh, vengeance, basically, against the murderers speaks of the desolation mentioned in the book of Revelation. Everything of this earth will be laid bare, right? Then today, the king's judgment will come upon those who reject his offer of salvation. The king's wedding invitation is being extended to everyone and anyone, total strangers, both good and bad. The gospel is being taken to the Gentiles. Gentiles. Those who refused his invitation, the king sent his army and burned their city, and those who dressed inappropriately were tied in hand and foot and thrown outside to darkness. The wedding, matter of the wedding garment in this case is instructive. In ancient Oriental marriages, in, in marriages like this, marriage feasts, special wedding garments were provided by the king himself. When you accepted the invitation, you were given what you were going to wear were to wear to the, to the event. A feast filled with properly dressed guests would be an honor to the king in the marriage. So an inappropriately dressed person would bring dishonor upon the host and ruin the, the occasion. The man who was caught wearing a street clothes learned the full extent of this. The first century hearers of this parable would understood the fact that the problematic guest wouldn't be in wel- welcome or accepted at the wedding feast and wore his everyday clothes, non-wedding clothes. It's not immediately evident exactly what this means, but like I said, with parables, it's hidden just beneath the surface. The clothes represent his spiritual condition. He considered his own clothes adequate 
And he said nothing when asked, the king judged him why he was not dressed right. He didn't understand what he meant. Christ's words here are here today clearly aimed at those who, like the Pharisee, trust in self-righteousness. Just as the king provided the wedding garments for his guests, God provides salvation for mankind. Our wedding garment is the righteousness of Christ. Unless we agree to wear it, we'll be prevented from entering the kingdom and attend the big and attendance at the big wedding feast. We get the whole wedding outfit when we're reconciled to Christ by accepting his free gift of grace. We may not mean to reject it, but often we do by not understanding it. So if I can spend just a little bit of time telling you what it meant in 2 Corinthians 5:21 if you remember, I read through 5:20 in the previous section. It says this after he describes what the kingdom of heaven is like. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. See, the modern view of the death of Jesus is that he died for our sins out of sympathy for us. He felt sorry for us because we were sinners. Yet the New Testament view is that he took our sin on himself not because of sympathy but because of identification with us he was made to be sin our sins are removed because of the death of jesus the only explanation for his death is his obedience to the father not his sympathy for us we're acceptable to god we're wearing his clothes not because we've obeyed not because we promised to give up things but because of the death of jesus and for no other reason we say that christ came to reveal the fatherhood and loving kindness of god and that's true but the New Testament says he came to take away the sins of the world, John 1, 29. Rejecting the garment of Christ's righteousness represents a rejection of the character that qualifies men and women to be children of God. Humans have nothing proper on their own to wear. After all, as it says in Isaiah, all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. So what? What are we made to think of this parable? We're commanded to clothe yourself the Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 13, 14. Clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ. For it is God himself who the Lord, God himself who the Lord is our righteousness, Jeremiah 33, 16. As the apostle Paul put it, we should be found in him, not having a righteousness of our own that comes from the law, our own clothes, but that which is in faith in Jesus Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith, it says in Philippians 3.9. Isaiah 61.10 says, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exalt my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with garland, as a bride adorns herself with jewels. Then in Zechariah 3.4, the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Other versions say new clothes, festal robes, fine garments. Um, I'm going to share a story here. I, I used to make fun of old people that reminisce a lot, but um, here we are, okay? So when I was young, I, I was in youth football, and uh, they gave out uniforms at certain, after you had the early practices, before you started hitting, they'd give out the pads and the uniforms you could wear and all that. And I was, um, if you were a coach's kid, you know, you're kind of early on the list. If you were athletic, you were early on the list. I was neither. And so I was kind of late on the list. There were a lot of kids that year. And they had clothes for me. I could have wore a helmet that was too big and a set of pants where the thigh pads were on the knees and the knee pads were on the shins. Um, and my dad, so that's all they had left by the time my turn came up. So 
So my dad took me out and uh, went to a sporting goods store and bought a helmet that fit perfect. It had an extra cage in the front for alignment. It gets hurt easy, you know. Um, it had pads that fit just right. They didn't, they didn't droop on either side. They didn't spin around when somebody hit me, you know. Um, the, the, the pants hadn't been worn by, you know, generations of people, so they still had the, the, the resilience where they, they clung to me, you know, and, and kept the pads where they belonged. And so those were the clothes that... My king at the time gave me to wear, and they were perfect for me. And such it is for us as we get ready for this final banquet, as we live in the kingdom in this time, we're given the clothes that are meant for us. Looking a little deeper, and I'm not going to spend as much time on this one, there's another parable on this topic, and it sounds similar, but it's different in, in some distinctions, and it's what we're going to close with today. In Luke 14, there's a parable of the great banquet. And it sounds the same, but it doesn't specify that it's wedding. And it's similar. Um, so um, real briefly, um, when, the, when those of you, uh, so this is when Jesus has shared all these other parables, and, and this one uh, Luke records, and, and the other Gospels aren't recorded. Um, when, when one of those reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to them, Blessed is everyone who eateth the bread of the kingdom of God. But he said to him, and he's talking about the end times, he's talking about the revelation uh, uh, view of that, and, and, and um, he says this, Jesus says this in response, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come, everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excuse. The other said I bought. The other said I bought five yoke of oxen, and I'll go, go need to go examine them. Please excuse me. And another said I've married a wife, therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. The master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go quickly out in the streets and the lanes of the city, and bring the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and there's still room. And the master said to the servant, go out into the highways, the hedges, and compel people to come in, that in my house might be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. You know, he said at the time of the banquet, he sent his servant. Once we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, once we put on his clothes, I believe we become his servant. Well, it may seem strange, you know, and this is just like the other invitation, a, a, a save the date probably went out before this. These people had said they were going to come, and the, 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 the host would then kill the number of animals he needed to kill to prepare enough food for the guests that said they were coming. And then he invites them, he tells them when the time is, it's all ready, it's set, the table's set, and they start to give excuses why they're not coming. They said they were going to come, but they have earthly excuses. It's a vast insult to him to start making up this, these excuses. Yeah, the guy bought a field, but who buys a field without looking at it first? Why would that have to be on that day? The yoke of oxen one's kind of hard to relate to, right? But a guy that has five yoke of oxen is a large landowner. He, you know, you, you, to take care of one little farm, you'd only need a couple oxen. Who buys those ahead of time without testing them first? The guy said he had to be married. Wouldn't he know at the save the date time that he was going to get married and not, not be able to make it and be able to decline then? What does it say about us? We're the poor, the lame, the crippled, the blind. We're sought out. They're not invited, but they're sought out and urged to accept the invitation. The poor, the pressed, 
but also the Gentiles. See, we're here servants now. We're supposed to bring this marvelous invitation to the, to the world around us, to those that are oppressed, to those in the hedges, those out on the roads. It's a mission. It's the mission of the host, and we must fulfill it. It's not just a great idea. It's why we exist. It's why you're still breathing today, is to pass on this invitation, because the banquet's ready. It's all set up. The table's set. This building, these ministries, this service, they're not here to meet our preferences and needs. They're here to let everyone know they're invited and give them a place to get ready, to put on their heavenly clothes, to get the material they need. So the main point is this. Once we accept, we become the servants. We have to proclaim. We have to summon. The final theme here, the host has prepared the food for a large number of guests, and he won't be satisfied till the house is completely full. I get the feeling, though it's not in the parable before us, that as soon as that last place is taken at the banquet, the door will be shut and the feast will begin. The father is lingering, waiting for each and every seat to be taken, and the end will not come until that has occurred. In 2 Peter, this becomes really clear. In 2 Peter 3, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And then it says later in verse 11, since everything will be destroyed in this way, everything that you're using as an excuse will be laid bare, what kind of people ought you be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of, God's, uh, day of God and speed its coming. And speed its coming. Do you hear that? We have to get dressed. We have to get ready and compel everyone we encounter to get dressed and ready. It's urgent. It is clear we can speed up the coming of the day of the Lord by evangelism. And this gospel of the kingdom of God will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Matthew 24, 14. The big banquet's the one we all want to be at. It's tied deeply and strongly to Jewish wedding tradition. It's described in Revelation 19, 6. Then I heard what seemed a voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints." And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Who will be married at the marriage supper of the Lamb? The participants of this incredible end time event? Well, it include the Lamb himself, Jesus Christ, and the bride who is his church. Every person who is a member of the body of Christ will be there as the bride, as a believer, you're cordially invited to marriage supper of the Lamb. Please me indulge me for a minute as I look at it this way. If this is too far off, um, Pastor Jeremy can correct it next week, okay? But what if, what if we answer an altar call, we get baptized, we start volunteering for a Christian cause, um, maybe start going to church? Could that be our save the date? You know, could that be the first announcement? Um, could that be where we start, you know, putting our schedule aside, a little bit and start looking to the future. 
Now we're invited to the banquet. We've been in, it's been announced that the great banquet has begun. It's the great feast. It's not at the end of time. It's now. His servants have been summoned to join us at the table and celebrate with his saints. Since we're, our, since we're now servants, we have to be about inviting. The table's set. Um, you know, the table's set. And as we've seen, we're properly dressed. What's preventing you from coming? You don't have a yoke of oxen to worry about or five of them, but is it your occupation or pursuit of one? Taking up all your energy, all your time, all your focus. Your need for relationship is so strong it's that, that you can't think about anything else right now. Or Sunday is your only day off. Or Sunday is your only day to fill in the blank, right? You're in danger of eternal separation. And you may tag along to the banquet, but you won't be found ready. You're going through the motions, but sin continues to separate you from Jesus. It still has power Sin still has power to break your bridge, to tear out your bridge. And it doesn't have to be that way. Listen to Romans 8, 37. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? None of those things has the power to separate us from his love and his eternal presence. Would the worship team please come up um, as I finish up? Yes, the marriage supper of the Lamb is at the end of time. But it may be any day now, right? It could be this afternoon. But even that, if it's not, right now, you can start putting on your wedding clothes. The king has them ready for you to put on. When you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are clothed in his righteousness. That's clear. I have 15 scriptures I could have shared on that very topic. You can, it, it is the proper attire for what's coming. You can find your place at the table. We don't have to, um, we, we don't know when the banquet will start, but we're gonna be ready. We're not gonna make excuses anymore. You can celebrate the presence of Jesus and the privilege because of his shed blood on the cross to pass through the curtain into God's presence through worship. And we can be in his presence, but as we stated today, sin still clouds our view, right? Sin keeps getting in the way. If you happen to listen to the news on your way to church, that kind of gets in the way of your spirit, right? It's all around us, but the day is coming at the banquet where this happens. 1 Corinthians 13, 12. Now we see dimly in a mirror, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. He's going to see us as we were created to be, and we're going to see him as he's been for eternity. As the song says, when my faith becomes my sight, Jesus Christ saved us from the penalty of sin. If we are in Christ, we are by the Holy Spirit's power, free from the power of sin. From, but at the great banquet, we're going to be freed eternally from the presence of sin. Stop making excuses. Come. You never have to be separated again, no matter who you are or what you've done.